Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. It's great to see all of you. I know if you're joining us uh, you know, from other campuses, we welcome you guys as well. Um, what a great proclamation as you just sort of prepare ourselves um, for, you know, for what is um, becoming of 2022. I've already decided this year uh, that I'm not celebrating New Year until tw- February the 1st, 2022. So don't wish me a happy New Year yet. Uh, we're going to officially call this Mush Month. I've been thinking about this for uh, the last eight days. And so this is uh, Mush Month. And the way I thought about this, um, because this year, I'm not sure about you guys, you know, we've seen all the memes all the chaos that's still happening in our culture, right? You know, no one knew that 2020 was a trilogy, so it's like it just keeps kind of running on. And so um, what I thought of is, because it's just kind of felt kind of, kind of weird, 2022 has. So I'm like, I'm not really ready for it yet, so I just decided I'm not gonna celebrate uh, the new year until February the 1st. So if y'all wanna join me in that, I would love for you to do that. Uh, and we're gonna celebrate uh, Mush Month together. And what mush month is, and the picture in my head is like when you're laying bricks, and I've never laid bricks before, but I've seen it done. You lay a row of bricks, and then you put a, you know, a bunch of mortar down, and then you lay the next row of bricks on top of the mortar. And as the weight of the bricks, as you push it down to get it level, as the, the brick on top sort of takes its place against the brick on the bottom, all the mortar sort of squishes out or mushes out. And that's kind of what January feels like as 2022 sort of comes to bear on 2021, it just feels like January is just kind of getting mushed out. But what they do is they would take the mortar and they scrape it off of the trowel and they throw it back in the bucket so it can be used again later on. So that's what I want us to do with January, right? It's kind of like the mortar that runs up. We're going to scrape it off of the trowel, throw it in the bucket, and then get ready to use it again. So we're going to take this whole month to sort of prepare ourselves for what is to come in uh, 2022. Can we do that together? Would y'all be cool with that? It's like a whole do-over, man. This is going to be awesome. And uh, we just make it up, right? We can do this. And so it's Mush Month. So don't wish people a Happy New Year yet. Just wish them a Happy Mush Month. And then February, we're going to like, I, I told Julie, I'm like staying up till midnight. I'm doing the whole thing on January 31st, man. It's going to be a whole new reset. And the reason is because I think this, this, this year hasn't started the way I thought that it would. And perhaps you feel the same way. Um, the year didn't start like you thought it would. Maybe, maybe something's like sort of left over or lingering, just hasn't felt the same, whatever it might be. So I just want to acknowledge that and sort of let, let's, let's lean into that. Let's figure out because we're going to scrape it off and throw it in the bucket. It's, we're not going to waste it. We want to use it really, really well. I think this is a perfect season for us to talk about the series that we're going to be in uh, for the next four weeks, talking about um, the world and its brokenness. It's a, it's, we're going to be utilizing uh, the guided prayers that we went through, that you uh, went through in the personal retreat. Um, if you have not done this yet, here's the great news about Mush Month, because we're not celebrating it uh, New Year until uh, February. You got, I got four more weeks to badger y'all about the personal retreat. So we're going to be using our personal retreats. We're going to be picking words. All these things we're going to do in preparation for what is to come. There were guided prayers throughout that we're going to be using them each of the four weeks uh, as we sort of celebrate or walk through this month together. What I want us to do is I want us to get a vision. I want us to get a vision, not just for how we're going to be a better person this year, what God's going to do in our life this year, but I want for us to have a vision that isn't dependent upon the world being less broken. I think that's why we're worn out, because we, we sort of, by default, think that, oh, we will feel better when the world gets better. And the world just doesn't seem to be getting any better. And so we, we recognize that there's something that is 
broken. Now, in my house, we have sort of a running joke that whenever something uh, happens or doesn't work like we want it to, we go, it's broke. And it comes from a story years ago where someone couldn't get their phone uh, to, to log on to the internet. So it's like you hear this, it's broke. It's like, what's broke? Well, the internet's broke. Well, the internet's broke because you can't get on your, on, on, uh, get your phone online. It doesn't mean the internet's broke. But for a lot of us, that's really how we sort of live. Like, we didn't really think the world was broken until its brokenness affected us. And now we can't seem to think about anything else. And what we, what we default try to do is to create another reality by which it doesn't feel so broken or the brokenness of the world doesn't affect us as much. And when we sort of run out of options, then we're just faced with, okay, this is just, then it affects us very deeply. So I want for us to get a vision for how you can find peace, a real peace that is available to you and to me, even if the world doesn't get less broken, or particularly if the world uh, sort of reveals itself as more broken than it already is. Sounds like a fun start to the year, doesn't it? That's what we're doing. So <clears throat> I want us to go back to the very beginning, back to Genesis. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It'll be a lot of fun there. We'll spend most of the four weeks there. But I want to talk about, because in order to understand why the world is broken, you have to look and think about what actually broke, like what happened. And this is the, where it's recorded for us. And a lot of you have perhaps seen passages like this in the Bible uh, from Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 23. And it says, for the wages of sin is, you may know, is death. How's that to start the new year? You're like, dude, I'm so glad I came to church today. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, right, but the gift is what? Eternal life. We, we have a picture of this. We have a picture of this in our minds that I want for us to reframe. A lot of us, when you think that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, eternal life looks like what happens to us after we die and we live on streets of gold and everything is sort of, uh, you know, angelic and organs and all those things. And over here, we have a picture of what is the wages of sin is death. It's like, okay, sin makes God mad. God, mad God, God got mad. And when God gets mad, he has to kill somebody. And so what he did is he killed his son instead of killing you. And therefore, it seems to make it all right. And now you get to live in heaven after you. That's, that's how most of us have thought about the gospel. Now, listen, let me be really clear. That's not wrong. It's just really incomplete. It's just really, really incomplete. And I think it really borderlines on misrepresenting what actually happened and God's heart in all of this. The wages of sin are death. The payoff of sin is death. The result of sin is death, not because it made God mad and he needs to kill somebody. The wages of sin is death, and it depends on how you define death. Death is literally, literally means separated. And when we are separated from God, we are separated from the life for which we've been intended. And the only other option is death. The wages of sin is separation from life. Because sin is what broke the world. And so I want to look for this over the next few weeks together to really start to understand how we process, how we take this seriously. Um, you know, Jesus talked a lot about this. Uh, when, he, when he would say things about, about death and no more death and having victory over death and all these things. And he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about something that separates us from the life for which we have made. The eternal life, it's really life of the eternal kind. It's, it's the God, the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift that came to us in Christ is the redemption of the life for which we have been intended. It is a life of the eternal kind that begins here and now. 
There's something that happens to us here and now that continues on as we learn to live under a new rule and a new way of life. And this is really where we've been talking about. I want to explore this really back from the beginning. Part of my own journey over the last you know, seven, eight, nine years has been to go back to the garden. And we did that on, on uh, Christmas Eve, right? Take me back to the garden. To go back to the garden and look and explore. And the reason is because this is one of the things that compels me greatly about the gospel. It's one of the things that gets me up in the morning. It's one of the reasons why I work so hard in some of the directions that I do. Because in the garden, what God did is he formed us into his own image. And then he commissioned us. He commissioned us and he said, I want you to contribute to what I have created. I want you to cultivate. I want you to rule, to exercise dominion. I want you to cause and act on it in really beautiful and uh, uh, contributing ways. And so what it reminds me of is that every day I have something to offer and to avail to what God longs to do even in this broken world. So it's to go back to the garden that everything that we do matters. Everything that we contribute has a trajectory in what is becoming around us and therefore ultimately in the world. And so in what you find is in Genesis chapter uh, 1, you have the creation of everything. Genesis chapter 2, he talks about forming man in a little bit more detail, fashioning him out of the earth. And he brings him up and he breathes him into the breath of life. And then Adam gets the privilege of naming all these animals as they stand in line. And he names them. He calls them. And what he calls them, they become. It's a creative act of naming, of using words to, to declare things. And this happens in Genesis 1. And then it says, the Lord says this, that it's not good for a man to be alone. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But he says, it's not good for a man to be alone. And it says that not a suitable helper is found. So he fashions out of Adam's rib a female and he brings her to him. And Adam sees her and he says, oh, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And he has this, 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 this uh, kind of expression of the beauty of Eve and what is coming together in them. And the very end of chapter two ends with this. It says that Adam and his wife, or Adam and Eve, were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, a lot of us just have this sort of picture, like the picture book uh, from the children's book of these like, you know, people in the garden kind of hiding behind the trees and everything is good, but it's not, it's not just a physical thing. The idea of to be naked and ashamed, or if you're from the deep south, it's naked and ashamed, however you say it, it's fine. I'm gonna get it butchered both ways. Um, but but, it, but you got, we got to think about this differently because we just we read it like we did when we were, you know, kids. And so we have to figure out a way for us to figure out a way for us to, to understand this um, at a level that's helpful. The, the idea of being naked and unashamed is the idea of innocence. And innocence isn't just that you were not guilty or haven't done anything wrong. To be innocent, it literally means not harmed. There's a safety in it. It means that you can be uncovered, you can be fully seen and not harmed or have any harm. There's a freedom in that. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the picture of what it was. We were uncovered and not harmed. There's a safety in what human beings were experiencing with one another. And that's the end of chapter two. And then chapter three, the wheels come off. It's known as the fall. And many of you have heard this. I actually have been researching this. I can't find it anywhere. But I don't know who originally coined the term the fall of man. I think it may go back to the earliest days uh, in Rome in the Catholic Church is where the fall of man became labeled. But I can't find uh, a resource or anybody who says this is where it was first introduced or how it was first used, the fall of man, which is what Genesis chapter 3 is known as. So I'm going to change it if that's okay. I figure we can make it mush month. We can change this too. Um, but I'm going to talk, talk about it as the entrance of death. 
Because the fall isn't mentioned in Genesis 3, but death is. And what it did is there's a couple things I want us to know to, to, to make observation about as we think about this. But the fall, also, or, or the entrance of death, also known as the fall, has sort of three components. Number one, and we're going to talk about these. Number one is that the fall is an actual event. We're going to read that in just a moment. The fall is an event. Number two, the fall is a condition. It's something that we live in, that we experience every single day. And then number three, the fall, this is probably the most important thing. The fall has a trajectory. It's interesting, when you read this, what's about to happen, the wages of sin is death. All of us have sinned, I assume, and we're still alive. So it's like, what gives here? What happens here? What is this? There's a trajectory this is really, really important for how seriously you decide to take your own sort of heart and your own soul in this and what is happening to you. So let's begin and let's read Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read most of the chapter. We'll start in verse 1 because that's an obvious place to start. Uh, and it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. So Adam and Eve, they are uh, uncovered. They are unashamed. They are free. They are full and a serpent who was more crafty than any beast, any of the wild animals of the, the, the Lord God had made, he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And he puts a seed, and here's what he asks. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? Now, the first command given isn't don't touch something. The first command given by God to humans is of any tree in the garden you may freely eat, except for this one. It is a, here's everything. And then Satan reverses this. Does God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Because that sounds kind of, ugh. And then verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat of the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not touch the fruit of the, the, fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Uh, you must not touch it or you will die. And here it comes. Verse 4, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. But here's the truth. Come here. Shh, shh. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. And that's what he doesn't want you to know. He, he, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. He puts a little question mark in her mind. Just enough to get her thinking, maybe there's more. Maybe there's something else. Maybe I'm missing out. Maybe, just maybe, what I've been born into, what I've been given, what I've been, what's been made available isn't Enough. Maybe God is holding back on me. And in verse 6, it says this, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Everything's broke. Just like that. And if you're like me, you always go, what's the big deal about eating an apple? Like That's, that's what's always kind of been pictured in my head. But the essence of this temptation, what, what, what is happening here, the tempter, the serpent is saying to her, God is holding back that somehow what he has promised or made available to you isn't enough. And therefore, you might want to consider taking matters into your own hands. Whenever there's something that is promised, as we've talked about this, whenever something is promised, as we don't, there, there seems to be something we're missing, our tendency is to try and take matters into our own hands. This is the product of the fall. The essence of this original temptation was freedom from dependence with us being able to control our own destinies and to control life on our terms. And the best way to control life on your terms is to actually define the terms. That's precisely what the tree of knowledge of good and evil did. 
it gave us the opportunity to redefine good and evil and life for ourselves. To do that apart from God, you would get the promise of God without having to wait or to depend on his provision. This is a really important thing for us to sort of mark down and get into our brains. Verse seven, what it goes on and says is this, that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, that something was wrong, and so they then covered themselves. They began to conceal themselves from one another. So there is an event, make no mistake about it. Here's what happened. In the beginning, we were created. We were made in the image, the very fullness of the image of all that God is, his life and his love for us. And we could sort of abide in this and rest in this. And then what happens is we broke trust. And we broke trust, we broke everything else, right? There's this, this span here. The fall, this event that happened, it was cataclysmic. It broke our relationship with one another. It broke our relationship with God. And it broke our relationship with the way in which we interact with the world around us. It broke our relationship to our place in this world. All four of these things were broken. And what God did was he created us. So we were made in the image of God to live. And from the relationship that we have with him, everything else would flow. And when that relationship got broken, everything else broke with it. The, sin, uh, uh, the fall was an event that happened when we broke trust. And make no mistake about it, when you break trust, you break a relationship, and that's precisely what happened. Most of us, when we talk about sin or you think about your sin, you think about sin in terms of the behaviors that you do, and you've never dug deep enough to find out what is it you aren't trusting about something that causes you to do these things. How are these, these habits or these traps or these patterns, how are they connected to my unwillingness to trust God for his provision, but rather to have life on my own terms? It's interesting he says that the tree, this tree was pleasurable for the eyes. It was desirable for wisdom. It was good for food. Right? All these things God had promised to provide, but it was the idea that we could have them on your own terms without having to depend on anybody for anything. That is kind of the dream, right? For you to be free enough to do what you want, when you want it, without having to depend on anybody else for it. Like that is the dream. That is also the fall. And what it does, it is broken your soul deeper than you can imagine. We're talking about this next week that there's a disintegration that happens within us because of sin, because of a broken relationship with God. So what I've tried to do is to define sin for us. And so I'm gonna, you have used various different definitions over the years, but this is a, sort of a little bit sweeping and, and we can nuance it a lot of ways, but I'll put it on the screen so you can take a picture of it or write it down or however you wanna think about it. But the sin is depending on anything else and, or trusting anything other than God as the source of identity, sufficiency, and life. That sin is first and foremost a trust problem. Most of us just don't think about it deeply enough to really press us. This has been one of the most freeing things for me and really breaking some, some pervasive sin patterns in my own life um, over the course of my life. But sin does some wicked things to us in a separation. Remember, the result of sin is always separation. It is always separation. It is disintegration in your own soul. It is separation in your relationship with others. And it is separation from your purpose, from your relationship with the world around you. It is always these things. 
So as I began to kind of wrestle with this, what you have to understand is there is a trajectory to this. We'll get into that in just a minute. But I want, you to show you, I want to show you what sin does, and we'll keep reading here, and we'll notice this in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8. So basically, they take the apple or the fruit from this tree, they eat it, she gives it to her wife. Now they realize that they're both naked, and so they cover themselves up. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Man, I wish I could hear that. Wouldn't that be so cool? To hear the sound of the Lord like walking in the garden that he had made in the cool of the day. That is a great picture. So they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and says, where are you? And the man answered, verse 10, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It's like, remember, you imagine once he said, he's like, oh. Because here comes the next question. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And without batting an eye, the man says, the woman you put here with me. Like immediately, she gave it to me and it's your fault for putting her here, right? He just blames everybody. So then God looks at the woman, verse 13, and says to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. What you begin to notice is a couple of things that sin always does. You want to test your own sort of relationship with sin, you can always look for two things. Number one is you look for the places in which you conceal or hide or justify. If you are trying to convince yourself or other people that the things that you're doing, the attitudes, the ways you're thinking about the world around you, if you're trying to convince them that they're right, you're trying to convince yourself of that, you can bet if you poke behind that far enough, you're going to notice something that is separating you from the life that God has made available, life that you are intended to live. Number two is it always blames. It was her or him or you. Or God, if you would have done this, or if you would have done that, it's always something else. So what, what happened is that we broke, not a rule, but we broke trust. And when you break trust, you break a relationship. And in this case, we broke a relationship from which all of life is intended to flow. And then what begins to happen is we are separated from ourselves. There's a, it's, it's really interesting, and I don't know if I have a lot of time to get into this, but it's really interesting that Eve looks at this, and it's mentioned in Genesis, and it says it was pleasurable for the eyes. It was enticing to the heart, right? There was a physical satisfaction. There was an enticement to it. And then John says the same thing, 1 John chapter 2. Uh, he says the same thing. He says that there's a ruling system in the world that is governed by the pleasure, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Almost exact three parallels in there. And the difference is what happened is in the fall, in this beginning, in the entrance of death, wasn't that those things weren't in us, is that we were now going to be ruled by them. We were now gonna be governed by the desires of our flesh, by whatever we see, by this desire to have or to create life on our terms apart from the life for which we were made, which is the definition of death. So what, what, what Jesus came to do isn't just to make the sacrifice for our sins, although, yes, he did that. But his resurrection, the reason he raised from the dead, is to return us and to make a way for us to have the gift of the life of the eternal kind for which you were made for in the beginning. 
So how does this happen? I'll tell you how. You just promise to do better. How's that feel? We've all, we, but this is what we've all done. I'm, I'm kidding. Like That's not how you do it, just to be really clear. But most of us, this is our approach. You do something, you say something, you come to church or you go to youth group or whatever it is you do and you feel badly that you gossiped about somebody or you did something on the weekend you were ashamed of or you treated this person, you said something to your kids or your wife and so what you just do is you just resolve to do better. I promise I won't do that again. And you even pray to God, God, thank you for your forgiveness. I promise you just offer a sacrifice of not doing it again to him. We don't ever learn how to receive and more importantly, I don't think we ever learn how to actually confess You don't stop. See, there is a trajectory to sin. There is a trajectory to your sin and a trajectory to my sin. The thoughts and the patterns of thought that you harbor inside of a disintegrated soul aren't stagnant. They move in a direction. You know this, right? They affect things. They affect your mood. They affect your outlook. They affect your sense of self. They affect all of these things. And there's a trajectory to them. This is actually mentioned throughout the scriptures. You see patterns of this throughout the Bible. Like some of you, you're, you, you start off, there's a little bit of disintegration, and then you become so cynical, cynical and skeptical and frustrated and angry. There's a, there's a trajectory to it. Anger doesn't tend to take care of itself. It tends to fester. And then what happens? It affects all the people around you. There's a trajectory to it always. Do you know where the end of the trajectory of sin is? You know where it ends? It ends in ultimate separation. It ends in ultimate death. Everything that happens to us, this is where it occurs. So what I wanna do for us in the last few minutes, I wanna talk about confession. Because confession isn't just about listing your sins. There's plenty of time for that. It isn't just about that. I do think you should name them. I do think you should name them. I think if you have, you know, if you struggle with various thoughts of lust or sexuality issues, you should name them and bring them out and bring them into the open so that they do not remain hidden. But this is the whole point. This whole idea here, when you start to think about this, the antidote or the solution to hiddenness or hiding is honesty. It's to stop playing games with things. To bring it out. And sometimes it's just between you and the Lord. Some of you have been holding on to stuff so long because you're afraid that God is going to be so disappointed in you. It's just like Adam in the garden. Lord, I heard you, and so I ran and hid. He's like, you don't need to hide. In case you haven't figured out, I kind of made all this. I know where you're at. Like, it's kind of, it's an interesting thing. But it's to stop hiding. Do you know who in this room doesn't have something way down deep inside of them? that they've struggled with the rest with. Do you know who? Nobody. Everybody in here has something. All of us. So the first thing you have to do, like confession, is, is confession isn't about, you know, waging guilt to feel bad about what you've done. And say, God, I'm so sorry for this. Confession is like, here it is. Here it is. And it's a struggle. And sometimes, dadgummit, I like it. Here it is. Then the second thing, is to just take responsibility. To stop acting like it's somebody else's fault or it's just the way you were made. And 
By responsibility, I don't mean trying to make up for it. What you're taking responsibility for is what God has actually entrusted to you. Confession is not just a way for us to experience God's forgiveness, but it's to step in to the life that he has called us to, which isn't to stop doing what you have been doing. It is to live according to the new rule and a new reign. The first confession is, Jesus, you are Lord. Do many people play games with all the different things inside of them. They play games with their money. They play games with their sexuality. They play games with their gender. They play games. They play, we play games with everything, trying to rationalize and justify instead of saying, Lord, the first confession is Jesus, you are Lord. You, you want to figure out how to get this right. You begin by restoring it. If everything else, if, I, if I'm right, if everything about you flows from this relationship right here, then until this one is right and whole, you cannot expect anything else to be. But the problem is most of us are chasing redemption here, here, and here. In order to sort of prove something here, it will never work. It will never work. So here's what I want us to do in the last few minutes we have together. I want to walk you through what I think confession looks like. And then I'm going to use one of the prayers from the personal treaty to sort of pray that over us. As we lead, I want to read you a passage. I was going to use just one verse, but I just wanted to read this whole section because it's been important to me in various stages of my life for various reasons. Dallas Willard said, Confession is where we lay down the burden of hiding and pretending, which normally takes such a dreadful amount of human energy. When innocence was broken, our innocence, our uncovered and uh, unharmed condition left us vulnerable to where we have to self-protect. We have to protect ourselves from other human beings. We have to protect ourselves from harm in the broken world. And we have to project an image that is acceptable to the world. So both of these things all happen. We are, we are broken. When we learn how to confess and to be authentic before one another, you actually begin to experience the depth of relationships for which you have been intended. But it begins with the first one. I remember wrestling with this so hard, and oftentimes I'd read Psalm 51, and it's this confession of David. David is like committed adultery, and he's killed somebody in the process, which at least made me feel a little bit better because I didn't do that. And, and so, you know, you know, you scale sin, right? I didn't do that. And, and so David's confessing. I remember thinking like, God, if you can forgive David, maybe you can forgive me. And I would read this prayer, and I would read it as like almost like I'm promising God that I'm going to do better. Like if I read this with enough emphasis or enough emotion, then perhaps, but I want you to listen to this as I read it to you. There, what, listen to what we do in here. Psalm 51, verse one. Have desire, have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love. Because of your great compassion, would you wipe away my rebellious act and wash away my wrongdoing and cleanse me of my sin? What act do we have? For I am aware of my rebellious acts and I am forever conscious of my sin. I don't think he had to work hard on this and I don't think you do either. And then he, this is his confession against you. You above all have I broken the relationship and I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are just when you confront me and you are right when you condemn me. Look, I was guilty from birth, a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. And I love this. Look, Lord, you desire integrity in the inner man, in my innermost parts. 
You desire wholeness and truthfulness and freedom in the inner part of me. You want me to possess the wisdom that I tried to take for myself in controlling and determining the terms. Sprinkle me with water and I'll be pure. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. May the bones you crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and wipe away all my guilt. Have you noticed what we're supposed to do in any of this? Like nothing so far. God, would you do this? God, would you do this? God, would you do this? I love this in verse 10. Create for me a pure heart, O God, and renew a resolute spirit within me. You know what my problem was? I used to think that was a one and done prayer. How often do you think you need to pray that? Create in me, God, this, this, this purity. God, give me a resolute spirit. That, that needs to happen like with every breath. Like this is, what, this is what we're getting at. It's interesting. What we could not tolerate, what God has promised to us at the very center is a depth of peace that isn't contingent upon how broken the world is. And what we decided was that peace that is based on trust is just too precarious for us. It's just too fragile. We would rather be able to control it for ourselves. And what I'm telling you, this is what he restores. But it happens when this relationship first gets restored. And this is only found in what Jesus has done for us. It's not simply that you take responsibility for you what you have done by trying to make it up to the people that you've done it to or try to sort of self-loathe or self-harm or deprive yourself. It's not like that. But rather it's to take responsibility for what you've been created for. And the things that undermine and pull are unbecoming of you. They're unbecoming. You have been given more glory than that. that. That's God's heart in this. We've got to learn to take our sin seriously. Here's why. Because sin will settle into your heart. It will settle into those disintegrated places in your soul. And you know this to be true. And there's a trajectory in your own heart and your own soul. There's a trajectory in the relationships that you have with other people. There's a trajectory in the way in which you interact with the world around you. So we need to step into his forgiveness to receive and trust what he has done for us. That it is the blood of Jesus that has wiped away our sins. It is his resurrection that has freed us to live the eternal kind of life for which we have been created. So is there something that you perhaps need to be honest about? Like that you just kept stuffed so deep. Maybe you need to tell God. Maybe you need to tell a trusted friend or let somebody that trust here help you. Is there something that you just need to stop blaming everybody and everything for? Because on the other side of that is something freeing, something for something that you've been intended for. Sin separates you from who you were created to be. And the longer you toy with it and play with it and tinker with it, the more separated you become from the things that matter most, the things for which you have been made. So God graciously invites us to confess and in doing so, 
He will cleanse us and restore us. He will create in us a pure heart. And then he will give us a resolute spirit. Wouldn't it be great if Mush Month became about you and I developing a resolute spirit? That would be pretty cool. So if you have it in your personal retreat, I invite you to do it. The prayer is this, and I just want us to read this. I'll read it loudly, and you just kind of pray in your own soul. Lord, search me and know my heart. This is modified from the one that's in your retreat, so it's available for you there. Lord, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Anybody got those? See if there is any offensive way in me. Not see if anybody else has offended me, but see if there's anything that I'm doing that has a trajectory in the lives of other people. I don't want to simply nod my head in agreement, admitting my wrongdoings, but rather I want to declare and confess that anything that separates me from you chokes out the life that you've promised and it hinders the freedom of my soul. Renew a resolute spirit within me and align my heart with yours. So as I confess my sin, I trust my love, trust your love, and depend on your grace. God, would you breathe life into my soul? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, here and now and forever and ever. And everyone who needs that, everyone who needs that, would you agree with me and say together, amen. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. That in him is the fulfillment of the gift of life of the eternal kind for which we have been created. Father, would you restore us to that even in this moment and then give us a resoluteness to that in the coming moments, in the coming hours. God, to find the peace that isn't dependent on whether or not the world is any better, but is holy rest on the promise that you have given us when you said that you have come to give us that life. So God, our confession is for that. We grieve our sin. We ask you to form and shape and forge. Help us to take it seriously. Bring people around us to help us. God, would you do that for us so we can learn to live together in the way in which you have intended and created us to live and experience the gift of life that you've made available. So I ask all of these things in the name of your son Jesus, who we confess is our King and our Lord. Amen.